How about those Haney girls? I mean, if we took a vote on cuteness, they would definitely have a four-way tie for the second cutest girls in the church. <laughs> they are just cute little girls and just a, a blessing uh, to see our young people, our young families come up and share God's testimonies of God's grace in their life. And that's one of the wonderful aspects of Advent. I would like you to turn to this insert that I placed in the bulletin for you. This has the various passages we will refer to together as we consider another of God's gifts, gifts that he gives to us. And during these four Advent Sundays, I'm bringing you different gifts to consider. Now, I used a gift that my mom gave Sherry back when we first got married to illustrate the way I'm picking these gifts. Uh, she gave Sherry a purse that Sherry had wanted and uh, really cherished and, and was so grateful to have received from my mom. But my mom was uh, is spontaneous in the way that she doesn't like to give gifts that you know are coming. Uh, she did give Sherry this gift, and knowing how much Sherry liked it, it was the big gift, you might say. But to kind of add to it, she would put $5, $10, dollars $20 bills in the various pockets of the purse. And so when Sherry got the purse, feeling totally satisfied that she got in this purse she'd wanted, she was surprised when she opened up the pockets and found even more. And really, when we think of Advent, Jesus is the gift. He is the ultimate gift God could give us because in Christ we have forgiveness of our sins and we're right with God now. But that's the main gift, but there are many other gifts that keep giving because of Christ and his benefits to us. And last week I talked to you about the benefit or the gift of God's adoption. He adopts us as sons and daughters and we have all the rights and privileges of sons and daughters with God. We're not just wrongdoers who've been made right and then set free to go do our thing now. We have been made children of the living God. Adoption is a great gift that we ought to celebrate all the time, but especially when we think of this gift-giving season, that great gift of Jesus also gives us adoption. Now, today I want to talk to you about another gift, one that sometimes gets obscured by our individualistic way of thinking as Americans. You know, we really pride ourselves on personal responsibility and self-sustaining ourselves. But there's another gift that God gives us that's more realistic because we need it. And that's the gift of fellowship. That is fellowship together with other believers. A supernatural unity we have with each other because of our union together with God through Christ. I'm going to repeat a phrase a few times throughout this morning that hopefully emphasizes this. Contrary to what our culture emphasizes, you are not a self-contained, self-sufficient entity. You are a member of Christ's body. I want to begin by reading this simple verse. It's the first verse on the handout. Romans 12, 4 and 5. Hear God's word. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Again, Contrary to what our culture emphasizes, you are not a self-contained, self-sufficient entity. You are a member of Christ's body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us Christ, the greatest gift ever given. And in Christ, we enjoy the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we enjoy adoption as sons and daughters. As such, we have bold access to your eternal throne. Father, we do live in an individualistic age. We live in an era of supreme competition and comparison between people. 
Father, please rescue us from our sense of self-reliance, of our sense of self-dependence or self-sufficiency. Make us to depend solely on you and discover the joy of leaning on each other, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Lord, please remind us this day of unity together with each other. Please give us a sense of the great blessing it is to be part of the body of Christ. I pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Now, several of you may be new and visiting and wonder why I refer to this document, but I'm going to ask you to turn in the back of your hymnal to 864 just for a moment to begin. And for those visiting, this is our confessional statement. The Bible is our authority. That is our standard. Everything else is to be judged according to Scripture. But in history, we have this confession of faith, which basically summarizes the Bible's teaching. It's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's always subject to examination and changing, if need be, according to Scripture. But we have this confessional standard. It's a secondary standard, and it's important. It helps you know what we believe, especially what your officers believe in the church. And there is a particular chapter that really speaks to the heart of what I want to bring to you today with regard to this gift of fellowship God gives us. On page 864 in the back of your hymnal, there is the chapter in the confession called of communion of saints. Communion is a big word for fellowship. That's the koinonia or the common life we have together. The common life we have together as saints. Not saints because we are in ourselves holy, but saints appointed by God to be united with Christ. And anyone who's in Jesus, who trusts in him, they're a saint. Communion of saints the community of believers. This is what the chapter is talking about. But look at the words of chapter one, section one and section two. I'll read them. They really help us understand the Bible's total teaching on what fellowship means. And I hope you see how this is a gift from God. It's not experienced by anybody except for those who are in Christ. Of communion of saints, it's the 26th chapter, the first section, it says, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by a spirit and by faith, those of you trusted in Christ for salvation. They have fellowship with him in his graces, the gifts he gives. That's what I'm talking about with the purse illustration. His sufferings, his death, his resurrection and glory. And then look at what follows. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good both in the inward and outward man. Do you see that God is ordered in the confession captures the Bible's teaching has ordered us to have various gifts and abilities. And when we come together in life, not just in the worship service, but in life, we help each other and we really can't be all that we're meant to be apart from each other. It's just by God's design. He's given you much individually and as families, but far more when we come together, look at the second section. This serves as a starting point for us. Saints by profession, and that is profession of faith in Christ, are bound to maintain in holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. We're thinking about the community and building up the community and that we have to maintain it. It doesn't just come naturally. We have to work at it. As also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, when someone is struggling with outward things, material things, stuff, we together can help meet that need. 
That's part of community. It's what God's called us to. Which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who at every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus? You know, theoretically, if we got a call from a church in some other far distant place that needed our help, and that happens at times, despite not knowing them personally, we're united together by a common Savior and called to reach out to them. It happened in New Testament times when collections had to be taken up for saints in Jerusalem. Churches from far away, never met them, would give to help. That's community. That's fellowship. That's a gift from God. Now, maybe some of you have the great blessing of coming from a family who believe and profess faith in Christ. That is a tremendous blessing. I cannot tell you how blessed you are to have uh, your biological family be also your spiritual family. But for many of us, that's not the case, not at least in a widespread way. And for many of us, true fellowship was never really experienced until we came into the church. And it's a struggle for us. Maybe you're just at the beginning of this and you still don't know how to relate to people in the church because you have all these preconceived notions about how we're supposed to fit into groups and clubs and and organizations. And the church defies all those because it's supernatural. I'll give you a little bit of my experience, hoping that some will connect with this or that you'll understand it. Growing up, I grew up in in a family that was centered around our ethnicity and some of the cultures we had connected to it. We had a large family on my father's side, and they really, really valued the importance of blood relations, and that being really the basis for unity and loyalty and support. It didn't matter really what a family member did. They were family, and you better come to their aid. And this was emphasized strongly, especially by the older generation, my father's generation and his sisters in particular. And one sister, kind of the matriarch of the family, would really remind us of this every time we got together. And if we were not visiting each other enough or spending enough time with one another, she would lament about how we are not being the family we're supposed to be. Uh, My mother and father would never like the way that you don't talk to your cousins or don't spend time with your uncle or don't. And it was a guilt trip every time we got together about how we ought to be more family. Well, that wasn't enjoyable to get together with the family when they kept ripping you for not getting together with family. I didn't like that growing up. In in a Sicilian family, this was uh, a deal, too, where the younger ones, you know, you just, until your volume got loud enough to win arguments, and that's the basis for winning arguments, you really were kind of had to listen, and, and you kind of took a beat down every time you would get together about the way things used to be in the old country and the way they are now, and we're all disconnected. And I would hear that over and over, and I do remember thinking to myself, well, what unites me together with my cousins who I hardly ever see? I have cousins that are 10 years older than me that I've never even met. And I don't know how I'm supposed to relate to them. And such loyalty is discussed by my aunt. Now, connected to growing up that way, part of that cultural experience is going to a particular church. I was Roman Catholic growing up, and so I never missed every week I was there. And I would go to church, in my view of church, and I'm not suggesting everybody has the same perspective. This was my perspective, was that I went to do my duty or to pay my price every week. And I'd see friends from school, because basically everybody in my school, with a small exception of a few people, went to the same church that I went to. But we never talked about church at school. And when we were in church, we didn't even look at each other. We just went in, went through the motions, took communion, and left. And that was my church experience. I did not view this as a community that I was going to. This was a place I was going to make sure I was okay with God. And it was a challenge. I'll be honest with you about that. Well, I remember about the time I was 13, I heard the gospel message clearly preached by this outdoor Bible school that was going on across the street from me. And I had enough religious knowledge to know who Christ was and my sin. I never understood how I could be right with God 
just that I had to keep maintaining this, this duty over and over, and that might get me in good stead. But I always was guilty about the sinner that I was. I knew I was, and church wasn't changing me like it should, right? That was my thought. And when this preacher started talking about how we're sinners and we can only be right with God through the work of Christ and faith in him, it resonated immediately. It wasn't a struggle for me. I said, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I believe. And so at that age, around 13 or 14, I started connecting with friends. Nathan's church was a Bible preaching church, a small church where we lived. Only a handful of people I knew went there. I kind of thought they were a little bit like kind of cultish, you know, like Jesus freaks, born again, those kind of people. But when I go there, all of a sudden, everybody had this great interest in me. I mean, too great of an interest. I remember when I'd be talking in church, one of the older guys in the church would tell me I couldn't talk. You can't write notes to each other in church. I couldn't believe this telling me this. But over time, I started realizing, you know, these people actually do care about what happens to me beyond this place. And they would follow up on what I was doing. And, and at that time, I was had one foot in one place and one foot in the other. And I was difficult, had difficulty understanding what it meant to be a Christian, how to live it out. And so, but I figured as long as I was good at church on Sunday and did all the Sunday activities at that church, I'd be okay. Just, just a little bit of a modified version of what I believed before. Just do more church stuff than just Sunday morning mass. So I'd live my life the way I wanted to live it during the week. And, you know, at the time I'm 15, 16, I remember the youth pastor really pressing me on really the kind of hypocritical life I was living. I proclaimed Christ, but yet, and I'm thinking, why is this guy so into, why are these people so intrusive? Why do they keep telling me this kind of stuff? And I'll never forget playing in a hockey game. I was the goalie, and I was saying some choice words to my defender who wasn't getting the, the, our zone cleared. Very choice words, I'll say. And I looked up, and I saw my youth pastor sitting there. He heard everything I said. And he didn't say anything to me about that specific instance. He just called me later to tell me good game. And he knew full well that I knew that he had seen a different side of me. And it was at that moment that I realized that the Christian life is meant to be in connection, and it can't be lived in a way that sees growth in grace without other people helping you. There's just no way. I was sincere in my belief in Christ. I just had no clue how it connected. And without other people bringing me into connection with themselves in the Word of God, in the accountability that comes from that, I could not grow. And I realize now, at this stage of my life, what a gift fellowship is, how badly we need it. Really, when pastors ask you where you've been if you haven't been to church in a while, it's not because we believe that you have to come to church to be right with God. It's not to make you feel guilty. It's not because we want you to put your offerings in the plate. It's because we know that we can't grow, pastors included, without being in the fellowship. That's the way God designs it. And it worries us when the saints aren't about the fellowship. Now, whether it's at this church or another church, I want every believer to be connected to a local body of believers in fellowship because it's a gift of God. It's like receiving a beautiful gift and throwing it and trampling it when we don't because it helps us grow. It's the very thing that God's given us to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was thinking about when you're a kid and you make that little you have to watch the seed grow and you get a clear, cla- uh, clear glass and get a paper towel and put water on it. You stuff the paper towel on the bottom of the glass. Then you put a lima bean. And the only thing a lima bean is good for is this. <laughs> to watch the seed grow. And you put it in the side and it, and it grows and it grows. But you know and I know that you, it doesn't stay growing if it's like that. It will die. You have to put it into dirt. You have to plant it. Okay, that is exactly true for you. If you come to Christ, you may, you may grow when you hear the gospel and God renews you. And it's true. You've come to Christ, but you will not grow until you're planted. And where you're planted is the church. It's God's fellowship. It's fellowship that nurtures you and helps you grow. You can't do this on your own, no matter how strong you think you are as an individual. 
It's impossible. It's not the way God's designed it. He saved a people for himself, not individuals on their own. Look at the second verse. I'll refer to the quote that I have there from Bridges in a moment. But the second verse on your outline there, your insert says, 1 Corinthians 12. And 1 Corinthians will be the book that we start an exposition of in the new year. But there's a little preview of the 12th chapter. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Now I want to begin this or continue this thought, this consideration of the gift of fellowship with a tremendous quote from Jerry Bridges, who's a very wise, wise teacher. Notice what he says. Follow as I read it, and I think you'll start to connect the dots more if you have not already. Bridges says, all believers share in common life in Christ. That's our unifying feature is Jesus. Whether or not we recognize it, we are in fellowship with literally thousands of believers from every nation of the world. Although we have never met most of them, yet we are in fellowship with them. We disagree with many of them over various issues of faith and practice, yet we are still members of the same body. Even though we struggle to like some of them, that does not alter the fact that we share together a common life in Christ. Neither our attitudes nor our actions affect this objective sense of fellowship. We are in fellowship with all other believers, whether we like it or not, or even recognize the fact. It's a work of God to place us in spiritual union with his son. Now in union with his son, we are in spiritual union with each other, fellow redeemed people. The moment you become a Christian, many wonderful things occur. You're united forever with Christ. You are declared righteous before God. You are placed into God's family and adopted as a son or a daughter, gaining all the rights and privileges that come with that. God begins a work in you of setting you apart to himself, just like that lima bean seed starting to grow and bust out on top of the cup. But that's not where it ends. That's just the beginning. What about your relationship to other Christians? Do you need them? Do they need you? Well, the biblical answer is, if you are a Christian, you do need other believers. God expects believers to grow in their faith and to do so by growing together in God's word. The growth and protection Christians need to experience occurs as believers assemble together as a local church. And that won't happen just by individuals or families attempting it to do it, to do it on their own. Christians and Christian families need each other to grow in their Christian faith. Almost 250 times, at least by my search engine's numbers, New Testament Christians are called brother, sister, or brethren. These Christians were from different cultures, backgrounds, and races. In a single church fellowship, there would be men and there'd be women, there'd be poor and there'd be rich. In that culture, there were slaves and there were masters. There were Jews, Greeks, and Romans. And they were brothers, they were sisters, they were brethren. It didn't matter what their status in this world was because related to each other, they were all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at the passage that I have noted next, Acts chapter 2. Now, this is not meant to be a normative prescription for how exactly the church works, but it displays for us the fruit of God's Spirit working in His people 
Acts 2:44 down to verse 47 that I have there, there printed for you. And all who believed, so that's the common bond, believed in Christ, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those are just a few verses, but they're, they're powerful when you consider the place of fellowship, communion together in the life of the church. Let's, let's expand or unpack these verses for a moment. Look again at Acts 2 verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. The basis for their fellowship and unity was belief in Christ. Now, biological relations have has as its basis blood relations. Christian relations for fellowship or communion has as its basis Christ and his sacrifice for us sinners. The gospel is what brings us together. We're all sinners can only be saved by God's grace. This brings us together. The unity that we share in Christ is profound. It's life-altering and life-changing. They had all things in common. They came together because of their common bond in Christ, and they had many common things they shared. Look at verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. And here's a key. As, the, as any had need. Now, it's not a call to communism here. It's a display of the affections that brothers and sisters in Christ had for one another. And in this particular time, many people lost a lot proclaiming the name of Christ. In real needs rose, places to live, food to eat. Uh, there were all sorts of needs that needed to be met that could not be met after they came to Christ. But collectively, when the church looked around and saw where those need spots were, they could sell something they had to provide for that need over there. That's never been different in the life of the church. It should always be that way. When real needs arise in the body, and that is a struggle we have, what's a need, what's a want, but when real needs arise... The church collectively, by God's ordained timing and provision, will be able to meet that need. Now, sometimes as we provide for that, there has to be real discussion about needs and wants and those kinds of things, especially in the day of plenty that we live in. But we should not let that reality hinder the fact there will always be people in our midst that have special needs that arise that they will not be able to meet. And the church can come to assistance collectively because that's how God's ordered it. We see this in the early church for sure. That's really what the monthly deacons fund is for is to be sensitive to those needs as they arise in the church. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together. That's the place where they had met as Jews. Now as Christians, they go there to hear the teaching and to worship. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now notice it's day by day. Now the Lord's day is Sunday, right? But it's not as though that's the only time they get together. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, hospitality, sharing with one another in their lives. That's super tough for us. It's not that we don't want to. It's that we're so busy. Even the least busy among us is far more busy than most people probably in the world. So we lack fellowship or the cultivating of fellowship because of our busyness. And it's a good call to us to think, how are we fellowshipping with each other? How are we making it a priority? Day by day they did this. They received their food with glad and generous hearts coming together. They're able to just acknowledge who gave them this, this wonderful practice of hospitality. You sense the unity about the church in Acts chapter 2, despite the persecution we know existed. I think it's basically a, an immediate answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember what he prayed? 
when he's praying to the Father before he went to the cross, he prayed, and for all the things he could pray for, he prayed that the church would be unified, that the church would be one as he and the Father are one. And listen to what he says in John 17. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And why does Jesus pray this? What is the end he's looking for? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. For all the things that he might ask the church to accent or to display, he asks for unity, that we would be unified in him. So when we get to Acts chapter 2, you see a bit of this starting to happen by this description. Then verse 47 of Acts 2, that's there, the last verse of that portion. What were they doing? Praising God and having favor with all the people. So they're in great unity together in fellowship, praising God and having favor with all the people, a sense of their community around them. That's not just the people in the church. It's in the midst of a very difficult time to be a Christian. They gain favor by those around them because of the peace they had with each other. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord did what? He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. More people came to know Christ because of the fellowship of the church. The fellowship promotes the unity. The unity promotes the fellowship. And be from that place of unified standing, we have impact in the world around us just by our witness before we even say anything. But if we are unified, we'll have much more ability to do great things out there when we go together to reach out. I think we underestimate the impact of a unified church and what a unified church can do in its community. Our common bond is Christ. So we work in an accurate view of Jesus. We never sacrifice the Bible's explanations and teachings on all subjects, and in particular, Jesus in the gospel. At the same time, though, we're working towards this unity so that we might be effective in living out Jesus's prayer. That people may know that Jesus was sent by God because of the unity, the oneness of the church, the fellowship of the church. Contrary to what our culture emphasizes, you, my brother, you, my sister, are not self-contained. You are not a self-contained entity or a self-sufficient entity. You are a member of Christ's body. It means you're not independent, you're interdependent. Just as in a human body, when an organ becomes diseased or infected, the whole body is affected. So it is in Christ's body. Your spiritual well-being affects other members, just as their well-being affects you. There really is no such thing in Christ's body as a lone ranger, though we may feel like it at times and even want to be left alone. I remember feeling that when I just became a Christian. On the one hand, I appreciated people caring for me. On the other hand, I wish they'd leave me alone. Quit bugging me about this. And you know what's a real warning sign when you talk to somebody? Maybe you've had this happen. You haven't seen them in a while in the church or you haven't had a chance to fellowship with them. And you know something's probably not going right. And you'll meet with them and they'll, they'll list a bunch of superficial reasons why they haven't been around or things aren't. And then, you, then, they'll, then you'll say, but how's your relationship with the Lord? How's your relationship? Oh, that's great. That's going fine. No way. It can't be. It's not all right if we're not with each other. And it's just, that's just to, def- to deflect, right? The real core of it is God places us in union together, and it's painful at times. I don't mean to say when you get together, everything's going to be a party, and fellowship is always coffee and donuts. I mean to say that the fellowship together will cause us to have these rubs against each other where we will have to repent together. And it's in those conflict moments that actually we become stronger. You know, the family background I talked about was so superficial to me because i would know cousin so-and-so was doing something really horrible but no one would say anything to them because they're family well that's not real love towards anybody 
But when we're together, living life together, there will be times where we rub the wrong way against each other. And guess what? That's actually part of the plan for community to help each other. Hebrews chapter 10. There's the next verse on your list. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the author of Hebrews here gives insight to some of the benefits of God's gift of fellowship. When we're together, two things he says here. We're stirred up to love and good works. We're exhorted. We're prompted. We're motivated. You know, as in any discipline you've ever been part of, it sure helps to have other people who are doing the same thing because they help you when you're having a bad day. Hopefully they're having a good one when you're having a bad one and you can help each other. And that's just the beauty of stirring one another up. You know how often we say, you know, I'd like to do such and such. Or I, someday I'm going to do this. Well, I'm more likely to actually do it when someone says, hey, let's go do it. We stir one another, one another up to love and good works. And it also says encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing line. If you think the days are desperate, all the more reason why you should be with the people of God to stir one another up and to encourage one another. Because we need it. We all get into ruts at times where we get in the habit of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it helps so much to be stirred up by other believers when we're in their presence. Take advantage of those fellowship opportunities that arise, formally and informally, whenever you have a chance to be with other believers. In 1 Thessalonians 5, that's the other verse, the last verse I have listed on your insert. It says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. In other words, Paul's starting this letter by saying, hey, you know what's coming. You know the lecture I give you all the time. You know what I'm about to give to you as exhortation. You don't even need me to write this. Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Always desperate times for believers. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do. You know, nudge the person next to you if they're kind of nodding off. Even right now, you might want to do that. Just kind of, hey, wake up. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. In verse 11 in that chapter, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We see the benefits of fellowship. I'll just summarize it this way to you. Together, in fellowship with one another, we come to worship and share and enjoy one another. This is as we bring glory to God, our common bond in Christ. Together, we encourage each other to think on the gospel regularly. The reason for our fellowship is Christ, and in particular, our being made right with God through Christ, the gift that we celebrate in the Advent season and every Sunday and every day. Together, as a fellowship, we can help to support each other in obedience to God's word. That's that accountability we all need. Not a bunch of legalists holding each other on legal lines but reminding each other of who we are as sons and daughters of Christ, forgiven, and what that looks like in our life, and that loving accountability that comes from one who cares about us. We can only have this when we share life together. Together we come to learn of our needs and can respond by helping one another. You know, we do live in a time where people are sheltered about what their physical needs are, and when they come on hard times, we don't like to say it because we are afraid of being judged. Well, the truth is, the truth is any one of us at any time could come into need. It's far closer than you think. I, we've had many people, especially folks from the community that will come to the church and ask for help. These are people that live in the area. These are not people that are coming from the poorest parts of town and they've fallen on hard times. Any one of us can. And woe to the person who thinks they can't. 
But the church has to know of these things. And by living together, we come to know of them. We can reach out and help and encourage by providing something that is needed. Often it's a physical thing that is needed. And that's what we do. That's part of what we do anyways. Together, we also can serve God's mission by reaching out to the world with the gospel and word and deed. We can do so much more in reaching out with the gospel to the world together than we can as individuals. Coming together collectively to join in in whatever enterprise God calls us to by word and deed to share the gospel of Christ everywhere. You know, we can pool our resources by giving to make the church strong, supported, and effective. You know, in these recent times with all this talk about the fist fiscal cliff and taxes and so forth and charitable giving. It's, you know, it's going to be capped a certain amount. That's going to have an effect. I've heard this from at least five people. Uh, what do you think about that, Pastor, that, that certain people will not be able to give as much? I thought to myself, wow, did God change the percentage on the tide based on the fiscal cliff? I didn't know that. I had not been aware of that memo in the scripture. Also, I didn't know that people were, stop, were supposed to stop providing for the needs of the church to provide for the recreational needs or whatever else it may be. I mean, we really got to do some soul searching on this. Are we really that freaked out about whatever the taxes do? It's the people of God providing for the church of God. I'm not really worried about it. And you think I should be. I mean, you basically pay, pay me. But I believe that God's spirit will work in the church in such a way that even if a time like that comes, it might be the best thing the church has ever seen because people actually start supporting what they think is worth it. But this is something we learn in fellowship with each other as we discuss this issue, as we discuss what's happening in life and how it relates to our faith and what the Bible tells us. We can't do this in a vacuum. We have to do it together, and that's part of fellowship. And together, all these things are made possible. Each of these work together. You know, I was thinking of our church mission as I try to on a regular basis. It's printed on our bulletin. But think of our church mission and how this this reflects the gift of God's fellowship. And it needs to exercise the gift of God's fellowship. The mission of Redeemer is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study His Word, and proclaim His gospel to the world. So worship is that central activity of, of every living creature, but the redeemed, especially called to worship God. That's the focus of our gathering is the worship of God, but it's not disconnected from other things. The word of God is what gives us direction for the worship of God. And the word of God also tells us of our fellowship with each other, our connection, our community. So our community, based on the word's description, helps us to worship. And as we worship, we enhance community and we learn more of his word. And all of this necessarily flows out into proclaiming the message of the gospel by what we say and what we do. So you see, worship at the center and orbiting around would be community or fellowship, the word of God, and proclamation of the message. They go together wonderfully and beautifully. And as our church comes to learn this, the need for fellowship will grow stronger and have more ability to reflect that Jesus has sent us to tell the world this. Contrary to what our culture emphasizes, you are not a self-contained, self-sufficient entity. You are a member of Christ's body. And as Romans says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. What a gift fellowship is for us, especially if you're lonely today. If you feel disconnected, disenfranchised, please recognize again, not only are you an adopted son or daughter, you are placed into a family with a bunch of adopted sons and daughters. We all have the same common story, and it's not about what I bring to the family. The common story is Christ. I mean, you can't look around your brothers and sisters and say, hey, they're accepted in this family because of what they have, what they do, who they are. That's not it. You can look around and say commonly, no matter what our diversity is in our background, we all have the same common entity. We're sinners. 
and lost apart from God bringing us to himself through Christ. So our common bond as brothers and sisters is Christ. And it's rooted in the fact that we needed a Savior and everyone here did. So you're not disconnected or disenfranchised or apart from others as you may feel. You're supernaturally part. And maybe what you're feeling is that you've disconnected yourself a bit. And by coming back to that, in all of its pains that it can cause, it's really the way God's going to grow you in his grace. I want to close with this statement by J.I. Packer that's on the bottom of your insert. Packer says that we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercises of private devotion. We should recognize rather that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. For God has made us in such a way that our fellowship with himself is fed by our fellowship with fellow Christians and requires to be so fed constantly for its own deepening and enrichment. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that fellowship can be defined in many ways. Communion, uh, intimacy, sharing, connection, partnership, all sorts of buzzwords, common experience, companionship, co-working, uh, mutual encouragement, participation. Lord, true Christian fellowship we recognize as a gift from you, and we thank you for it. Lord Jesus, thank you for bringing unity to us in yourself and your work. I pray that every member of Redeemer would become close with his or her brothers and sisters around them. Relieve us from a sense of fear we have to exposing ourselves to each other, the fear of, of rejection or judgment. Help us just to see that your divine design calls us to this Give us a sense of unity that bubbles over into a spirit of outreach and service to the world around us for the glory of Christ, answering the very prayer of Jesus our Lord. I pray this in Christ's most holy name. Amen.